Turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6. John 6 is a, a long chapter, 71 verses, and it basically deals with Jesus as the bread of life. Starts out with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, has an interlude talking about Jesus walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, and then the rest is an extensive discussion of who Jesus is as the bread of life. The reason, it's no coincidence that John put the feeding of the 5,000 right there leading into this chapter, as we'll see as we look through the story of the feeding of the 5,000. He's obviously talking about more teaching more than just, you know, it's time to eat, here's your food. Um, it's important to remember, and for most of you this is probably a review, but bread was their staple and it was something that was very important to them. Not only important because you need food to survive, but it was important to them because they saw bread as being something that, you know, they were amazed at the fact that you could take bread, something that you ground up and baked yourself, and as you ate that bread, it became a part of you. And so for them, it was especially important because when you would eat with others, and that was a big deal to them, to be hospitable to other people, to get together for a meal, to, to break bread together. It was a big deal to them in their culture because they believed, and rightfully so, that somehow when we both eat from the same loaf of bread, we become related in some way because that bread becomes a part of me, that bread becomes a part of you, and thus, in a sense, we're a part of each other. And so we see biblically as bread being an important uh, item always. You remember, and he goes on to talk about it, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and how God provided for them bread every day, that manna, that bread that came from heaven, that Jesus ends up making it clear here that it was all a picture of him. In the, in the Ark of the Covenant, they took the law, the Ten Commandments, that were, it was God's revelation of, of basically what his standard is. And they put that in the Ark of the Covenant. They also took Aaron's rod that had budded, showing God's designation of a leader, and they placed that in there. And the third thing they put in there was a bowl of manna, that bread. It's the only thing that appears twice in the, in the uh, temple or in the tabernacle because there was also bread out in the holy place and then also in the Holy of Holies under the mercy seat. And so uh, it's important and Jesus has a lot to say about bread. But it starts out in chapter 6 that Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is also called Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. He was reaching out and ministering to the people, and what they were most impressed with wasn't his teaching. They were most impressed with the fact that he can heal people, that he could do miracles. And so um, a lot of people were following him, and Jesus went up to the mountain and sat there with his disciples. Crowd was gathering around, and now it was Passover, and there was a feast that was nearby. And so Jesus, it says, lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? 
But this he said to test them, test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus had a plan, but he placed this question out before the disciples and said, where are we going to get bread? Where is this going to come from? Now, Jesus liked using food as an analogy for spiritual things. Remember, you know, just a couple of weeks or last week, probably one of the Sundays, um, where Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And when the disciples came and said, you've got to eat, he said, hey, my food is to do the will of the Father. Even as he had told her, I give you water that can, that can come forth from your life. Um, and, and so, again, he's wanting to drive this lesson home again and even more intently. And so he was just saying, okay, Philip, do we have any bread? Knowing that he would say no. Philip said, well, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient for all these people, even if every one of them just had a little bit. And Andrew, Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Almost jokingly, hey, all I know is I just saw a kid with five little, and these weren't huge loaves of bread, they were little buns, muffins, basically. He said, well, I just saw a kid with five loaves and two little fish, um, but that's not going to help. And Jesus uh, listened to that and said, tell the people to sit down. There was a lot of grass there, and so they, they sat down. There were about 5,000 men. There were probably also women and children, so over 1,000 people certainly that sat down in order there. And Jesus took these five loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus takes the loaves, and he, he thanked God for them, and he he began to break them into pieces, and these pieces he would give to the disciples, and the disciples would offer them to all those people who were sitting there who were hungry. It reminds us of another scene of Jesus taking the bread, giving thanks, and breaking it. And that time he would say, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's the same basic lesson that he's getting to, but doing it in a little different way He's, he's showing, he's giving the order of ministry, first of all. He's thankful. And then he's taking it, and rather than him handing it out to the people, he's giving it to the disciples, and the disciples are giving it to the people. What people? The people who were following him because they wanted to see a miracle. These weren't disciples. These weren't believers, primarily. They were looky-loos. They were seekers. They were ones who were hanging around the fringes. And he, in giving them this commission, is, it reminds us as well that, you know, God wants to bless more people than just us. God doesn't just say, be out there on the fringes and be away from me and don't know anything about me and I'm not going to bless you. But if you ever sign up, if you ever come and join, boy, then I'm going to really take care of you. Then I'll feed you and clothe you and I'll take care of you. Sometimes we keep that kind of an image in our minds that, that we're in a special position and so that God just wants to pour out his blessings on us. But the Bible says that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The truth is God wants to bless people who are in the world and he wants to use us to do it. He wants, to, he wants us to witness the breaking of the bread to see how he is giving himself. And again, as he broke the bread for communion, he said, 
Do this in remembrance of me. And so that commission of Jesus to the disciples, again here we see a reminder of it because he breaks the bread, gives it to them, and he gives it to them so that they can give it to others. And anything that God gives to us as his children, as his people, he's giving it so that we can share. He's giving it so that we can give it out. Now, the church is sometimes, the pendulum tends to swing in the church. Oh, you know, the church becomes very aware of the needs of the community and the needs of the world. And so churches will begin to really focus their attention on feeding the poor and, and clothing them and helping them. And, and that's a good thing and that's a blessing. But sometimes the message gets lost in all that social work. And the church's agenda becomes simply just another social agency. But how important it is that we realize these disciples had to keep coming back to Jesus and getting more pieces of bread so that they could share them. It was, it was something that Jesus set up that way. You know, in the same way that when they were baptizing, it says Jesus himself didn't baptize. The disciples were baptizing. See, we are his disciples. And he wants to give to us so that we can give to others. And if we don't give to others, we'll get fat. We'll get lazy. We'll be limited. We'll miss out on the blessings of a walk with the Lord. But he wants us to be the conduit whereby his blessings can flow out indiscriminately to others. It's an important thing for us to remember. He gives his body. Who did he die for? Just the Christians? No, he died for the whole world. He isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's his goodness that brings us to repentance. And so a very important role that we have as believers is to receive that body, to receive that bread, that sustenance, allow him to provide for us, but only by, as a means of our reaching out to others and, and sharing with them that which God has done. Not just telling them, but giving them, feeding them, ministering to them, encouraging them, including them, even if they aren't included strictly at this point. It's we're to reach out and, and, and look for opportunities to build bridges with people that don't know Jesus. And sometimes that just means meeting their physical needs and telling them that it's in the name of Jesus. That's what they were doing here. Not a big sermon at all, just fed them. And so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So after everyone had it, hey, gather it back in. Nothing should be lost. His word doesn't return void. That which he does accomplishes what he sets it out to accomplish. And so there was no waste. Now, it's funny. We don't know what he did with the bread. Perhaps they ate it for a few days. Perhaps they took it somewhere else and gave it to someone. But it wasn't a waste. And that which we receive from God and offer to others is never wasted it says, therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves and, uh, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They realized this guy's something special. They didn't acknowledge him as the Messiah, but there had been a prophecy that a prophet was going to come. And they didn't know what that prophet was going to be like, but 
But God had told Moses, Moses had told the people that that would happen. And so now they're acknowledging Jesus is a special prophet. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. See, their attitude was, hey, this guy can feed us from five loaves. He can feed 10,000 people or more. This is the kind of guy we need to have to be president. We need to make him king. We need to elect him to office. See, but Jesus was never about bread physically. He wasn't about just feeding the poor. He was doing that as an avenue to something much more great. And it wasn't his time. He knew he was going to have to die. It wasn't his time to be promoted to king. It's probably not our time to do that either. And if what we do for the Lord causes us to somehow profit from it and people want to get us involved in their causes and their things, it's important for us to know when to withdraw. There are a lot of good causes out there. There are a lot of important things for people to do, and I'm thankful that people do them. But it's equally important that we know what God has called us to do and what he hasn't called us to do. I, one of the problems that I have in my life is I, I like to do too many different things. I take on too much because it all looks good to me. And I'm not very good at saying no. If someone asks me about doing something else, yeah, sure, count me in, I'll do it. That's a, that's a trap because you'll end up trying to do so many things that you may miss out on the most important things. And one thing about Jesus, he was never in a hurry. He was never rushed. He always knew what he was called to do, and he never allowed himself to get sucked off into something that he wasn't called to do. And that came from him spending time with the Father, listening, taking orders from the Father, saying, I just do what he tells me to do. And so there are people who believe and, and they have a good point that, boy, we need to be involved politically. And I do believe we need to be good citizens. Other people, we need to get involved more socially. And that's certainly a, a good call. Other people who have all sorts of ideas for things that they think we ought to be doing with our lives. But we're only supposed to do one thing with our lives. And that is take orders. Obey what God tells us to do. And if I get caught up and spend my time rallying around political candidates or writing letters for causes or organizing people to boycott products or worrying about these kinds of things, that's fine. If God's called you to do that, that's great. But if you're doing it and God hasn't called you to do it, then all that is is just a distraction. What was wrong with them wanting him to be king? Isn't this what he came for? Yes, but he came to do it in a particular way and at a particular time, and he had a strong sense of what that was. And we need to have the courage to reject things that may look good if we haven't heard from God that this is the time for it. There are even people who offer us great opportunities, but we need to hear whether or not it's God. We may see great investments or involvements and see it and just go, wow, this is great, but we have to hear from God. If we don't, we'll get caught up into ultimately doing something in the flesh, having begun in the spirit, then being completed in the flesh. And Jesus just didn't do that. So here the people were, woohoo. So he took off. He avoided it. He knew it wasn't his time. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea 
and got into the boat and went over towards Capernaum. They're at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Jesus went off and spent time with his father. So the disciples said, well, let's get back home. I'm sure Jesus will hitch a ride somehow. Got in the boat and took off across the Galilee. But the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. Well, that might freak you out. I could see that. One of the other gospels says they thought it was a ghost. But here's Jesus walking on the water and he's gaining on them. He's catching up. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So here they were, they're taking the boat. He took a walk. But they got there at the same time. He ended up catching up to the boat. And right when he got there, we don't know if it was just magically, boom, the boat was there. Or whether by the time they got him settled into the boat. They had already arrived. Three or four miles would get you most of the way across the Sea of Galilee, certainly. But they may have been going in circles because of the waves, so we don't know where they were. This is the same time when Peter walked on the water. We know from Matthew's gospel that Peter saw Jesus, and when he realized it was him, he was amazed that he was walking on the water, and he said, hey, let me walk. And Jesus said, okay, come on. Peter got out and began to walk on the water. But it says that he took his eyes off Jesus. He began to look at the waves and, and he sunk and cried out, help. And Jesus grabbed him by the hand, pulled him up and took him, walked him back to the boat and they got in together and then headed off to Capernaum. That's a pretty amazing story. And I think it's interesting that John doesn't tell the story. He leaves it out completely. How could, how could he do something like that? Well, if you're cynical and you know that Peter always had a competition going with John. Peter, when Jesus told him that he was going to be crucified someday himself, his first question was, how about John? So we know that Peter was competitive with John. We know Peter was a guy who was sticking his foot in his mouth a lot, speaking up at the wrong times, uh, rebuking the Lord and things like that. So you could look at it and just say, you know, hey, John just didn't want to give Peter the glory. On the other hand, you know, in Mark's gospel, Mark was the source of, Peter was the source for the gospel of Mark, we believe. Peter told Mark all the stories, and Mark wrote them down for the gospel of Mark. He doesn't tell the story either. And I think I can see why Peter wouldn't want to tell the story. Because he sunk, he took his eyes off the Lord. He was looking good for a while, but he looked kind of stupid, all wet and everything. And, you know, it's just another one of those stories. And, you know, I'm sure the guys love to sit around telling, hey, remember, and making fun of Peter about some of the things that he was doing. You know, he would start to be prideful in himself and then go, hey, remember when Jesus called you Satan? And, you know, remember when you walked on the water and then you sunk? That was pretty smart, wasn't it? And, and so Peter kind of leaves it out of the story. John leaves it out of the story maybe for a different reason. John was called the apostle of love. He referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And John had a gentleness about him. And I kind of suspect that he left the story out because he really didn't want to make Peter look bad. If you read the stories of Peter's denial of Christ, John is the one who gives him the lightest treatment. 
He, he relays the story, but he really plays it down a lot. Whereas even in Matthew, it emphasizes that Peter wept as he realized what he had done. In Luke and, and Matthew, th that was in Mark, that was Peter's account. He told that in, in Matthew and Luke, they made it even stronger and said he wept bitterly. They stretched it out a little more. John was pretty generous, I think. And so at the same time, John records, he's the only one that records this inter interplay between Jesus and Peter where Jesus is saying, do you love me? Then feed my sheep as Jesus restored Peter. So I think that John had a soft place in his heart for, for Peter and for everyone. And as a result, he just thought it's just better off not to tell this story. So that's my theory anyway. Now in verse 22, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which the disciples had entered. In other words, they saw the disciples leaving the boat without Jesus and no other boats had really come by. They saw that Jesus wasn't there and his disciples. So they headed over to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, how'd you get here? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. He knew they were, they were liking him because, hey, he gave them bread before for free. It's kind of like if you do something with a little child, they remember you give them a piece of candy or you um, throw them up in the air to play with them and they like it. It's like it plants it in their minds and they just keep coming back for more. It's why kids are able to wear adults out because they don't ever get tired of the games. You can just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and they just keep wanting to do it. Like a lot of dogs chasing frisbees or balls. They just, hey, they're in that groove. The people were getting conditioned that way. They were following Jesus, and so Jesus says this to let them know, look, there needs to be a shifting of gears here. You, you need to have a, a, a quantum leap in your thinking. There needs to be a paradigm shift for you, because that which is spiritual is what really matters. If you're living your life for bread, if you're following me just to get what I'm offering to you, you're missing out. You don't understand what it's all about. And so they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to him, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. How much work is it to just believe? And yet that's our job. That's what he says, this is your work, believe. Trust in me. His point is, it's about me. It's not about you. It's not about anybody else. It's about me calling attention to himself, offering himself in this way also. And so they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? They're going, okay, we're supposed to believe. What are you going to do to make us believe? He had just fed them from five loaves and two fishes. They had seen other miracles, but they just wanted more. And people who thrive on the miraculous just require a greater and greater level of the miraculous. It's why I believe that the movements within the church that emphasize signs and wonders are mis misled. I think they're mistaken. They don't cause you to have faith. They actually cause you to have less faith. 
It's why many of us, boy, when we're a new Christian, we're strong. God's speaking to us a lot. He's doing miracles in our lives, and it's like so easy to follow him. We just flop the Bible open, and boom, it's exactly the passage that we needed. Then sometimes as we mature and we grow, we flop it open. It keeps opening to genealogies and stuff, and we're going, man, I remember when this used to work. It's different. And God doesn't speak to us as clearly as maybe he once did. And we think something must be wrong. We think that, boy, that personal relationship with God, it's, it's not there anymore. The truth is, it's there more than it ever was. Because now you're giving the opportunity to show faith. Are you going to believe in what you don't see? Believing in what you see, that's easy. Believing in what you don't see, that's crucial. Because that's faith. That's what real belief is all about. And so Jesus is, again, stressing to them, you know, don't believe because of miracles. That's not, that's not what faith is. That's not what I'm about. And when you emphasize miracles, you're going to have to do one of two things. First of all, the miracles are going to have to get more impressive. Well, I remember back in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of evangelists with healing ministries going around. And their, their miracles were really less than impressive. One of the big ones, one of their favorite ones is, you have one leg that's longer than the other, and so I'm going to stretch it out. And so they would do it. I mean, it's real easy to do. Most of the people who had it done didn't even, they weren't aware that one of their legs was shorter than the other. But the evangelists would say, well, do you have some back pain and things like that? Uh, yeah, I do. Well, that's why you're out of balance. It's kind of like a, it was, it's kind of like a, a form of, you know, pitching chiropractic or something like that sometimes where it's the idea that your body's out of line and so we can straighten it out. And so they'd hold your legs so that one was longer than the other. It would be like sticking my arms out and going, man, look at that. You know, this, this arm is longer than the other. Let's see if I can stretch it. Oh, Lord, just stretch it out. And oh, look at that. And, and, and that's seriously what they did. That was a big miracle. People would drive from miles around see a bunch of people get their legs stretched. But after a while, that gets old. You're going, I don't want to see the same leg stretching thing. So then they started claiming all sorts of other things. And then you had your, you know, slain in the spirit stuff, and then barking and howling in the spirit, and whatever else. It's gold dust falling from the sky. You have to keep increasing your miracles, or people aren't going to keep coming. And so what do you do? You fake it. And that's what happens. And you justify it by saying, I need to stimulate the people's faith. I want to, to teach them to trust God. And so as a result, I'll play a few games, do a few tricks, and it's going to increase their faith. But we're absolutely wrong when we think that miracles increase our faith. Miracles never will increase your faith. Unless you're a non-Christian, it's the first miracle you've ever seen. If I have a miracle, if I was to do something to you tonight, spectacular, if I was to say, look, I'm telling you God is real, and in order to convince you, I'm going to fly around the room right now. Ooh, maybe, what if, well, no, I don't. <laughs> and it, if I did it, how many people in here would think, nah, God's still not real. That was fake. No, you'd probably go, that's impressive. Um, I could take an offering afterwards and really cash in. But would you really have more faith? How much faith does it take to believe in a flying man? 
I mean, you see it, you go. If I go, hey, if, you, if you're having a hard time with this, come on, I'll carry you, and you can fly around the room too. And eventually, we'd be able to convince everyone in here that God is real. But because God is a spirit, and he wants to relate to us in the spiritual realm, which is not the material realm, which is not the visible realm, in order for us to make that quantum leap, in order for us to jump into the realm of the immaterial, the realm of the supernatural, it's not by the supernatural coming into our realm, it's by us, despite what we see, despite what we feel, saying, I'm going to choose to believe anyway. And if you all left here tonight after having flown around the room, you'd believe in God still, but you'd have left less faith than you have right now because you've never flown around the room. So Jesus just lets them know, hey, look, I know what you guys are about. I know, you know, and they're saying, okay, do a miracle, do a miracle. And Jesus said to them, verse 32, most assuredly I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. Oh, by the way, well, first in verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the desert. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Kind of what they're saying is, you gave us bread from muffins, but Moses just had it fall from the sky every day. So why don't you do something like that? And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Basically, he's saying, first of all, Moses didn't give anybody anything. Secondly, that bread from heaven was just a cheap imitation of the real bread from heaven, and that's me. The Father has sent me to you. Understand this. Get it. That was only a picture. This is the reality. And they said, okay, well, give us this bread. They still didn't get it. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Similar to what he had told the woman at the well. He said, if you ask me, I could give you a water that's going to spring up eternally. You, you drink this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst. It's going to come from within. Same kind of thing. He, and, of course, they didn't get it. But Jesus, again, claiming to be the bread of life, claiming to be the sustenance, the provision, everything that you could ever need, he's saying, that's who I am. That's what I am. And I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He said, the opportunity is there. The bread of life, that's me. If you come to me, I'm not going to throw you out. You don't have to be qualified. You just come to me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. He's identifying himself as the bread of life, but saying it's for eternity. It's for real. It's something that looks to the future. If you partake of me, if you allow me to be a part of you, if you fellowship with me, I won't turn you away. I'll accept you and I'll, I'll give you eternal life and, and you'll be raised up. That's God's will. And then the Jews started complaining and said, you know, what's he talking about? I'm the bread which came down from heaven. 
Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? They're laughing at him and going, what are you talking about? We remember you when you were a little squirt. You're not, you're not from heaven. You're not manna. And Jesus answered them and said, don't murmur among yourselves. Now, this is one of many times in the Gospels that we see people are over talking and complaining and out of earshot of Jesus, and yet you're never out of earshot with Jesus. So he approaches them and says, I know what you're talking about. Don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Again, look, I came from the Father. I'm the only one who's seen the Father. You can believe who I am because they were murmuring, huh, you know, he's from Joseph. No, I'm not. He goes on to say, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This really confused them. I'm the bread of life. I came down from heaven. If you eat me, you'll live forever. Strange stuff. And the Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves again. They went back to talk it over. Said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus, knowing what they said, said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This was scandalous. It was crazy to them. The law would forbid a, a righteous person from ever drinking blood, certainly from ever being a cannibal and eating a person. But see, again, he's talking in a whole different realm. He, he's not talking about literally eat my body and drink my blood. He's talking about partaking with him in the most intimate of fellowship of allowing him to be saturated into our lives. And they didn't get it, and they didn't want to get it. But it freaked them out enough that they just, oh, you know, forget it. And as he began to talk like this, it says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? What if you see me going up into heaven? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So there were a lot of disciples and a lot of them weren't believing. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me 
unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This was not a very, you know, easy, palatable message that he preached. It was a, it was a difficult message. But he was trying to explain to them. He says, I'm talking in a spiritual sense. They should have got it. He goes, I'm not talking about the flesh. This is a spiritual thing I'm talking about. Don't you get it? But they didn't. They, they couldn't understand. I believe their mistake is the same mistake that the Catholic Church makes today by believing that the elements of communion are literally the body and blood of the Lord. A, a good Catholic, a Catholic who believes in Catholic doctrine, and I know a lot of Catholics who admit that they don't really believe this, but the official doctrine of the Catholic Church is that after the priest blesses the elements of the Eucharist, that if you took that wine and you took that bread and you put it on a microscope slide, it would literally be the flesh of Jesus. They say that literally if you could blood type communion juice after the priest blesses it, that you would have the DNA of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would literally be blood, his blood. That's what they believe. It's called transubstantiation. Now, I know a few Catholics who have snuck the juice out and looked at it under a microscope, and I can tell you it's not. It's not blood. It was still wine. But they took literally when Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. And so I don't bag on Catholics because of transubstantiation. I, I never fault anyone who takes the Bible too literally. It's better to take it too literally than to try to see symbols and everything. So I'm not saying this to be critical of the Catholics. I'm saying this to, to say, though, that they were mistaken in the same way that these disciples were mistaken, not understanding that Jesus was going, I'm not talking about flesh, I'm talking about spiritual things. If they read carefully, first of all, if Jesus had drank something that was actually blood, when he said, this is my blood, if it was, he violated the law and he couldn't save us, he wouldn't be perfect. But as you read in the Gospels, when Jesus shared the communion feast with his disciples, after he had declared it to be his blood and they drank it, then he said, You'll, you will not again drink of the fruit of the vine with me until you do it in my kingdom. So after he had blessed it, after he had poured it, after he had drank it, after he had said, this is my blood, then he calls it the fruit of the vine again. So clearly, literally, it wasn't blood. But Jesus is trying to drive home to them something that he doesn't even mind offending them a bit in doing so. And I'm fascinated by this when it comes to Jesus. He didn't worry that much about offending people. I mean, frankly, every time I share with someone, when I counsel somebody or when I teach, in the back of my mind is always, don't say something that's offensive. But I know that I do, because if I, for one thing, if you're going to say the truth, it's going to offend certain people. For another thing, I'm just kind of an out-of-control person sometimes, and so I just say things that I shouldn't say. I don't use notes, and that's a dangerous thing. You'll say something that you mean, and instead of deciding, ah, I think I'll leave this out. I can usually clean up second service if there's something that I see these aghast looks on people's faces in the first service, or someone comes up and they got the whole wrong idea, I can fix it for second service, but Wednesday night we're working without a net. So I realize there's a, you know, there's a, there's a danger always. You open your mouth, hey, you might offend someone, but Jesus offended people all the time and he didn't even care. 
He didn't deliberately offend them, or did he? He knew what they, how they would take this. And he knew that it would drive people away. And they left. Many of the disciples walked away and didn't follow him anymore. And he didn't seem to, I don't think it's correct to say that he didn't care, but he didn't run after them. Because he realized, if somebody's going to follow me, they're going to follow. If they're going to leave, they're going to leave. So why prolong the agony? Why sit here and coddle them and nurse them along and treat them with kid gloves? Just say what you have to say. And if people can't hang with it, they're going to leave. And that's what he did. But he said he knows there are some people who have been given to him by the Father, others who haven't. He knew some of them believed for the wrong reasons. He knew some of them had the wrong heart. And so if what he did drove them away, he was fine with that. It was okay. And there's something that's incredibly admirable about that. To just say, you know, if this bugs you, sorry, this is the way it is. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it and re-explaining it to you. You have to decide whether you're in or out. Are you with us or against us? And, and, and so Jesus does this a lot. I one of the other stories that just blows my mind is the rich young ruler. Man, the guy's been righteous all his life. He's followed the law in every way. And Jesus said, there's just one more thing. You need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And, I mean, that's radical. How many of us would have become Christians if that was the condition? But Jesus said it to this guy to make a point to him, to reach out to him, and the guy walked away and it says Jesus looked at him with love. He loved him and he looked at him, but he didn't stop him. He didn't chase him down and go, wait, it's not what you think. It's okay. It's not, I'm not talking about, you know, you don't literally have to, you have to be willing to. He didn't, he didn't do that. Jesus sometimes said, unless you hate your wife and your children and your mother and your father, then you, you can't hang with me. You can't participate with me. Now, we know he didn't mean hate him. We know that he was using it as a comparative term. He commands us in other places to love everyone. So you can figure it out. But Jesus didn't seem all that burdened to explain himself. He was more drawing a line in the sand constantly and just going, yeah, you with me? You willing to hang with me when you don't understand everything I'm saying? And if you won't follow him blindly, if you won't follow him and just say, you know what, I'm in this, I'm with this, I'm a part of this, then when the chips are down, you're going to leave anyway. And so his attitude is you might as well leave. I sometimes things will happen in the church or decisions that will be made and you know it'll be like you know there's some people who are going to be upset about this and brings back memories of the past or you know there are consequences and everything and and then you have to decide are you going to try to do what's right or are you going to sit here and coddle people and and just um, try to make sure that no one gets bugged at you and ultimately what you have is a bunch of people in the church then who are just about ready to leave that doesn't work. That, it's not that way. So you have to take the attitude, and I do as a pastor sometimes. It's like, you know, if this is what God wants us to do, this is what we're going to do. If somebody's going to leave over it, boy, we find out who our friends are, don't we? Sometimes when you go through a really tough time in your life, there are a lot of people who you thought were your friends who now keep their distance, who now don't want to talk to you. They avoid eye contact. Good, because then you'll find out who your real friends are. 
Because when you're down and you're struggling and times are difficult and maybe you've messed up or something's happened in your life that's alienated people, then those people who come to you and let you know that they still love you, that they're with you, that they recognize that they're on your team, that they're part of you, that they're in fellowship with you, you find out that's who your real friends are. And it seems like that's kind of what Jesus was doing here. A lot of the people left and it says and didn't follow anymore. And uh, it says uh, in verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. This, what, Peter, what, what is said here by Peter is something that we would think is not a wholehearted endorsement. It's not a, we're behind you 100%. It's more the idea of, frankly, we don't have any place else to go. We know that you have the words of eternal life. But we think you're sounding crazy too, frankly. But... We're just going to stick with you anyhow. That's what real fellowship is. That's what partaking of the bread of life really is. That's what the church is supposed to be about. It's us saying, you know what? We are one. That's why Jesus in John 17 prayed several times. Make them one. Why Paul told the Philippians, if you care about me at all, care about this, that you guys would get along, that you would be one. And that's what Jesus says the bread is all about. It's, can you realize, will you be willing to believe even if he's not giving you bread right now? Are you willing to participate in his body, even if some of it is kind of sound, seems gross to you, turns you off? Will you associate with people that offend you? Are you in or are you out? Our fellowship, and John goes into this a lot over in 1 John, chapter 1, talking about our fellowship, but our fellowship is that here we are all together. We don't have any place else to go. We've decided this is home. This is life. We are all participants of his body. As we partake in communion together, we're saying his body that was broken goes in me. I need to be willing to have my body broken. I need to remember him when times are tough, when I'm suffering, when blood is being spilt. I need to remember his blood. I need to let this mind be in me that was also in him. And that's the whole image of the bread of life. That's the whole image of communion. It's why communion is so important. We'll be participating in communion next Wednesday, by the way. There are some people, last night I was up till two in the morning talking to John Corson. And we were talking about communion and up in his church in Applegate, they had communion every morning and they had it a couple of afternoons and they did it every Sunday morning at church. And I'm just going, yeah, I don't know. And I said, didn't it become just kind of ritual and routine when you did that? And he, and he said, no, because it was never ritual and routine to me. He said, people knew I took it seriously. I loved it. He said, every Sunday morning message, it wasn't communion tacked on. It was everything was focusing toward the cross. And... Uh, I'm not ready to jump into that, but it's a great point. And it, and it reminds us and it, and it speaks to us of this importance 
of identifying with the body and blood of the Lord, taking it seriously. Oh, it's not literal body and literal blood, but it's not just crackers and juice either. There's something that happens. It's one of the only, it's the only thing that the New Testament teaches us that Jesus calls us to do regularly. That's a physical thing of going through the motions of doing it. And there's something that happens in it that's very important. It's something that we can't afford to neglect. And, and so, again, Jesus laying out for his disciples, emphasizing early on in his ministry, I'm the bread. You're going to have to eat me. Uh, I'm the blood. You're going to have to drink me. You need to be so close to me. You need for me to become a part of you. You need to become a part of each other. And that's the image that he's portraying, and that's the truth. We need that intimacy and that fellowship. It's something that we're desperately missing nowadays. In days of where you pick churches like you pick us from a salad bar. I have a little of this, a little of that. Maybe I'll go, I don't like that song, so I think I'll go over there. What I really like is this church on this night and this church on that day. And, and we've become kind of a consumer mentality. I'm not knocking that, nor am I telling you, oh, shame on you if you go visit another church or go to another church. That's, that's totally fine. But what happens as a byproduct of that kind of thinking is that we just don't take our fellowship seriously. We don't take our intimacy seriously. We don't have that level of commitment. We're always like the disciples that left Jesus. I'm hearing that. I don't like it. Boy, Dave's talking about John Corson and all this communion. and That's like Catholic. That's weird. I'll tell you something, man. If we start having communion more, count me out. I'm out of here. If you start leading singing without instruments, I'm out of here, man. That's just too odd. That's too strange. We're not out of there. Where else would we go? The words of eternal life are coming from Jesus. He's the one that draws us together. He's the one who is a part of us. He's the bread of life. You leave him, you leave life. You leave sustenance. And, and so he's pulling his disciples in with this picture and bringing them to the point where they almost can't stand it, but they realize they're in for the long haul. And if you realize you're in for the long haul, you'll end up getting it. I can tell you, there are so many things when I was younger that I didn't understand that I thought were horrible, that as I grew older, I began to discover some of the reasons why people do some of the things that they do, why God even does some of the things that he does. I recognized lessons that I learned because of submitting to him when I didn't understand him. And that there was a song, and I love the line of it, that says, blessed are you when you trust what you just don't understand. If you're not getting it, good. It's a chance for you to utilize your faith. It's a chance for you to decide whether you're really a part of the body or not, whether you'll take him in, whether you'll fellowship with him and with those who participate with you in him. Let's see, how late is it? Ah, we can do this. Chapter 7. In chapter 7, Jesus is, in a big way, publicly offering himself. Chapter 6 was more of a private explanation that this is going to get weird. This is going to get difficult. But now, as we come to chapter 7, he, he shows up back in Jerusalem and really creates a stir. So it says, after these things, he was walking in Galilee. He didn't want to go to, back to Jerusalem because the Jews were trying to kill him. But the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand, and everyone, it was one of the three feasts that everyone was supposed to go to, every male. And so his brothers said to him, 
why don't you get out of here and go to Jerusalem so your disciples also may see the works that you're doing? For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers, they were too close. Jesus had said last, last time we met last week, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And here his brothers don't even believe in him. One of his brothers is James, who would become a leader in the church. But even at this point, James tells us that he didn't really believe until the resurrection. So they were saying, hey, come on, get this show on the road. Here the, the people who had eaten the bread were going, do a trick. The Jewish leaders were saying, do a trick. Now his brothers are going, hey, you know, they're trying to kill you. Why don't you go down to Jerusalem and really show off? Let's see this. Let's get the show on the road. They didn't believe in him. And Jesus said, my time hasn't yet come, but your time is always ready. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm just not going just yet. My time has not yet fully come. He wasn't going to hang with them. He let them go. When he said these things, he stayed in Galilee for a bit. When his brothers had gone up, of course, we would call it down, heading south, but it's always up to Jerusalem. He also went to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret, just kind of laying low, not with a big bunch of people around him. And the Jews were looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? People were complaining, some saying, oh, he's good. Others saying, no, he's, a, he's conning the people. Nobody came right out and said it openly because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews at this time had already decided. And when it says the Jews, it's talking about the leaders there in the synagogue. They had already decided to kill him. Nobody wanted to identify openly with him. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. It wasn't a new, it's not in the temple proper, it's in the temple grounds. There were, it was a large area and wasn't that unusual for the various rabbis to stand there. People who were bringing, um, you know, who were celebrating at the feast would hear these teachings. And so he began to teach. And as he taught, the Jews were surprised themselves. How does this man know letters having never studied? They're going, this guy's good. He's never been to seminary. He hasn't had that kind of an education. He's a carpenter. And so Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine isn't mine. See, again, he heard what they said. They didn't say it to him. Wow, how are you this good? They were saying it among themselves. And he goes, hey, I hear you guys back in the back there. I heard what you said. Here's the deal. It's not my doctrine. He who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he'll know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? They didn't know that he knew that they were trying to kill him, but basically he's laying out here and saying, I'm just doing what God tells me to do. I'm following his will. Now, by the way, you guys look to Moses as your hero, but you sure don't keep the law, do you? And you're trying to kill me? And the people said, yo, you've, you're possessed. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? We don't want to kill you. And they're thinking like, okay, who told on him? And Jesus answered and said, I did one work and you all marveled, the healing that he had done on the Sabbath. Moses therefore gave you circumcision not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? 
Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's saying, look, circumcision is definitely work. It's work for you. It's work for the kid. But because the law says to circumcise little boys on the eighth day, if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath, you don't hesitate to do it because you're going, oh, it's the law, it's the law. He says, so you basically bend the law to do something like that? And he goes, I heal somebody and I'm in trouble? You guys don't get it, do you? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's going, think about what's right. Think about what makes sense. Use your head. Come on. I'm in trouble for healing, and you're not in trouble for cutting? And so some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? So people had heard that they were trying to kill him, and they're going, hey, what's he doing? He's up there preaching. But look, he speaks boldly, and, and they're not saying anything to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're going, are they holding out on us? Is this, are they afraid of him because he might be the Messiah? However, on the other hand, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. The Bible doesn't say that, except that he's from everlasting. Then Jesus cried out. He heard this discussion way over in the other side of the temple. There was a lot of commotion and everything, and yet he addressed them. And he called out to them and said, You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So he cries out to them and says, you know, I am, you say you don't know where I'm from. Or you say you do and you won't know where the Messiah is from. But he said, you have no idea where I'm from. You don't, you don't see it. I was, I was around before I was born, is basically his point. And so... Again, addressing these guys and calling out to, him, to them. One other thing I wanted to mention, just dropping back into verse 18. He said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him as true and known righteousness is in him. So Jesus is saying, look, why would I do this? I'm not glorifying myself. I'm glorifying the Father. If I was cashing in on this, if I gave you a big speech and then told you, okay, everybody, give me your money, then... Okay, I, there's my motive. But you can't figure out my motive because I'm telling you I'm going to die. I'm telling you I'm giving myself. I'm not telling you to give to me. I'm telling you that I'm giving myself to you. A profound statement. And so then again, as he tells these people, you know where I'm from. They didn't want to believe it, but deep down inside they knew something was up. And so therefore they sought to take him. They go, that's it, man. Let's get him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They tried to get him. They just couldn't do it. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? In other words, guy, could anyone ever come and do greater miracles than what he's doing? Clearly, this is something different than we've ever seen before. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And Jesus said to them, I'll be with you a little while, longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Kind of like what he said later on in John 14 to the disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? He said, I'm the way, 
the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, giving the message, I'm going somewhere, you're not going to see it. But if you believe in me, you'll see me again. You'll go there because you know me. If you don't know me, I'll just be gone. You'll never see me again. Kiss me goodbye. And so he, he lays that out to these Pharisees. And uh, the Jews said, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? <laughs> they didn't get it. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is he going to go minister to Gentiles? What is this thing that he said, you'll seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? They're having the same problem that the people had in the previous chapter, discerning the difference between spiritual things and fleshly things, interpreting everything in light of the rubric of our existence rather than to understand there's a whole different existence of which we do not know. And if we're going to understand God, we have to operate on that plane because our rewards are in that realm. Our commands, our motivations are in that realm. Our future is in that realm. The reality of our, of our warfare that we're in right now is in that realm. And so if you get locked into just what our society is teaching, that we're just machines, the physical world is the only world that there is, then you're always going to be going, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't understand. The Bible doesn't make sense to me. It's spiritually discerned. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to, has to help us on. And so on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. He came down for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering, the, the Feast of Sukkot. And this is the feast where, and I was going to turn over there, but we don't have time. But you can check it out later. It's in Deuteronomy. It's also in Leviticus 23, down there towards the bottom of the page, towards the end of the chapter. And, and they're told, what you need to do for this seven-day feast, seven, the number of completion, you need to live in little tents, basically. And so, and to this day, Jews celebrate this, this feast. It comes at harvest time into September, beginning of October, there are many theologians who, and traditions that say that Jesus was actually born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That would be interesting if it's true. The idea was it was to commemorate their wandering in the wilderness, and so rather than stay in their homes, they would go live in their little tents and camp out for a week. They put palm branches over the top of their hut, but they had to leave it open enough that they could see the stars because it was, there was a particular scripture that they read in a prayer they prayed when they saw the third star that they saw that night. So they would do it for seven days. And during this time, during this, this feast, it, in fact, it was the only feast that the Jews celebrated that was an emphasis on celebration and joy. And, and, and you know, it was a real positive thing. Remembering what God had done for them. Noticing that this world, these houses, they don't really matter. Because if we have God and we're living in a tent, that's better than being without God. A really wonderful tradition, but one of the things that they would do during the feast, every day of the seven days, they would go and gather water in a silver jug. And as they would get the water um, there from the pool at Siloam, which means the sent one, 
They would come and pour it out over the steps there in the temple. But after seven days of the feast, the eighth day came, and that was an extra day that was thrown on. It was a seven plus one feast, really. The idea of the eighth day, the great day of the feast, was like, man, we've had such a great time with God. We've had such a great time enjoying what he has done for us. Let's just do it one more day. It's kind of like, you know, that second meal that you might have Thanksgiving night. You've said you're never going to eat again after lunch, but man, it's still, it sounds pretty, it's like, okay, let's just have one more piece, one more slab, one more sandwich of turkey or something. And that's what they did. It was just like, let's take this a little further. It's like if you're on vacation and if all of a sudden you can pull it off and just go, you know, one more day of vacation would be really nice. That's kind of what they did. And on that eighth day, they took a gold pitcher and they took it to Siloam and they poured that water out. And it was at that time that Jesus here stands up and says, if anybody thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Over in Isaiah chapter 44, it's a scripture that they would read at this point as the water was being poured out. And, and so it was at this time, and, and they also read Psalm 118. So if you want to jot those down and look at them later yourself, you'll see the significance. But Jesus is just saying, this is about me. If you come to me, if you believe in me, if you're thirsty, come to me. If you believe in me, the scripture said, out of your belly, out of your heart, will gush forth torrents of, of living water as literally you know, what it is saying. And again, here, quoting from Isaiah. And, and so he spoke it concerning the Spirit. He's basically saying, they're going to figure it out later after the Holy Spirit came upon him. That's what that living water is that gushes forth. But he's saying, this feast is about me. Many from the crowd heard it. They said, huh, this guy's a prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. And some said, come on, would the Messiah come out of Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that Christ would come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So they were arguing about whether or not he was theologically qualified to be the Messiah. Of course, the prophecies had referred to him coming out of Nazareth, coming out of Egypt, being born in Bethlehem, and he was all of those things. He was born in Bethlehem. They fled to Egypt, came forth from there, lived in Nazareth. But they were fighting over that rather than going, look who he is, look what he's doing. And so when the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said, hey, how come you haven't arrested him yet? They said, man, I've never heard anything like it. No man ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered and said, are you deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? What, are you guys getting converted? I mean, this crowd, they're stupid. They don't know the law. They're accursed. Nicodemus, the one who had had his recent secret conversation with Jesus, spoke up and didn't say, hey, I believe in him. But he said, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And they said, what, are you a Galilean? Look, no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They just kind of put him down like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. So this whole, these two chapters, the first, the re personal revelation of Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who will feed you in a way that you can't imagine. If you're in fellowship with me, if you'll trust in me when you don't understand, You'll see, I'll be there for you. It'll be the right move. And then as he began to reveal himself as the Messiah and ultimately standing up in the feast and, 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 and shouting out to them, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. The scripture has prophesied, Isaiah was talking about me. Psalm 118 was talking about me. 
The, this feast that began in, in Leviticus and, in, and is described in Deuteronomy 21, it's about me. And there he is. He's offered. He's saying, I can give you living water. I can change your life from within. And how important it is for us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've trusted in him. We're looking back and reading this as an ancient story, but the truth is Jesus Christ is just as much the bread of life today as he ever was. We can't depend on anything else other than him. He is that water that springs forth inside us. He's the one who offers that to us. He's the one who baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. He's the one who equips us to serve him. And it was simple in those days and confusing. In these days, it's not so confusing. We have all of the scriptures to explain it. We have John's account to, to fill in the gaps. And yet still, like in those days, for us, we still have to decide, are we going to depend on him completely? Are we in or are we out? Are we receiving from him that bread of life on a daily basis? Are we partaking of him together and, and joining the body and appreciating the fellowship that he gives us? Are we going to isolate ourselves? Are we going to just keep our options open? Are we going to, I'll have a little of God and I'll have a little of this too. It's nice to trust in God, but boy, a bank account sure helps as well. Or do we say, you're it. Jesus said, my food, my sustenance, my life, it's just doing the will of the Father. And we would do well to say the same. And more than saying it, to live it. To remember that it's just Jesus. That's what it's about. That's who it's about. That's our life. You know, so many of the things we worry about in life, if we would just look at Jesus, they wouldn't matter. They would completely fall into place. How in the world could we ever complain about anything if we're thinking about Jesus and what he suffered for us and what he's done for us? Am I going to really complain because, oh, I was moving this and my back hurts? When his back was, was cut open, hacked apart? When he's, his body was broken, if I'm identifying with him, am I going to complain because my body's breaking down? I'm reaching my limits? Jesus puts everything else into perspective. Who he is and what he's done, it gives us a view of reality that we can't have otherwise. And if I have Jesus, I have enough. That's why Paul could say, hey, I've figured out how to be content wherever I am. I've learned how to abase and how to abound. I've learned how to suffer need. I've learned how to have an abundance. See, because Jesus is all I need. He is. My needs are already taken care of. Anything I have, every minute of life that I experience, every bit of blessing that he gives me, if I have a place to live, if I have physical food to eat, if I have clothes, if I have friends, it's all, it's all frosting on the cake. I don't need it. And you go, come on. You don't need a house. You don't need a car. You don't need... No. If I don't have those things very quickly, I'll be with Jesus. And he was all I had that mattered anyhow. Someone has said, I think it was Corey Ten Boom, who said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I've found, and I'm sure many of you have found, in times when you lose things that are valuable to you, 
when you let go of things that you thought you couldn't do without, and then you realize, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay without because I have him. And nothing, nothing can compare to having him. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that was spoken of. If you come to me, plenty of water, plenty of food, plenty of wine, plenty of bread, I'll take care of you. Let's pray. Lord, we're sorry and we repent that sometimes we act like we need you plus other things. And when we do that, we must make it look like you're just a fraction of what we need. You're just a part of the equation. And Lord, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to live with the assurance that you are all we need. You are our very bread of life. And though we don't understand you much of the time, because we have you, we don't need to understand. We want to learn to trust. Lord, we're sorry when we, through our own selfishness, sometimes splinter your body. As Paul warned those people who were being selfish in conducting communion, and he said, be careful that you don't discern the Lord's body. Lord, help us to discover together what that fellowship means, that we're all partaking of the bread of life, that we're all intimately connected, related, dependent on each other and on you. Lord, help us to live this out in a very practical way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry I ran a little late.